Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. So Mike, my, my main strategy for surviving the upcoming week is to probably just spend as much time in this room as I can because this is the most well-refrigerated room in Northwest Arkansas most weeks. Um, and hey, thank you, Mike, for providing that cool relief for all of us. Um, hey, if you have your Bibles, open up to the New Testament, the book of Titus. We're going to start in chapter 3 today. We'll be there in, in just a moment. Um, but we have been on a journey as a group of deacons and, and leaders trying to really seek after God's face around our church. And I, I just want to say before we get started today that that, man, there are, there are pastors and staff members on this church who, love, who, who work here who just deeply, deeply love this church. And I just want to remind you to pray for them, to give them a hug, to encourage them, because it's not an easy time to be a pastor. It never has been, never will be, but it's not right now. That's a fact. And so I'm just so thankful for the staff that we have at this church. As a matter of fact, let's just keep going from there. You know, when we think about um, the times that we are in today, um, but earlier this fall, there was an article from The Atlantic magazine where a contributor wrote an article that, that was titled this, The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. And the whole theory behind this, this article is kind of summarized in this one, this one quote where the author says, The aggressive, disruptive, and unforgiving mindset that characterizes so much of our politics has found a home in many American Churches. This mindset is actually wrecking our spiritual leaders. A study uh, by George Barna last year, a Christian research agency, um, found that four in ten pastors, or two out of five, I mean, lowest common denominator math there for you, uh, are seriously considering leaving the ministry. Their study finds that pastors have found that there is a post-COVID malaise in many of our churches, lower attendance, overall disengaged um, membership, just a, a spirit, a feeling of languishing as a church. Many of these pastors are citing burnout, conflict um, over COVID-19, politics, racism, blah, 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 you name it, you name it. Actually, Christian researcher Ed Setzer has, has dubbed this time in American church history the great sort where scores of church people have left churches, some never re-engaging. Others have left churches to rejoin other churches that better align with their ideology. Notice that word, better align with their ideology, not their theology, not their doctrine. This is about ideology so often. Here's what Ed Stetzer has to say about the great sort. Huge numbers of people have moved from church to church for reasons tangentially related to the pandemic. For example, some people left their church because they wore masks. Others left their church because they did not wear a mask. They sorted themselves into churches that followed their view of masking. Some people left church because they heard the name George Floyd. Others left church because they did not hear his name. Some people left because they, the Sunday after the presidential election, the pastor prayed for Joe Biden. Others left because pa the pastor didn't pray for Joe Biden. There's a general feeling among pastors, Christian researchers, and spiritual leaders that this moment in American evangelical history is unlike any moment in American evangelical history. And to a large degree, they're right. 
But to a large degree, they're also wrong. Because while there is no denying that the culture of debate and conflict has seeped into the walls of the American church, it's actually not that new. It's actually not that much of a surprise. We actually have large parts of our New Testament that were written because the very thing that we see happening today, which is the cultural, political realities entering into the church walls, was exactly what we see happening in the early church over and over again. Let's just think about the early church for a moment. Acts chapter 2 is really when the church began. The Holy Spirit descends on these people. Crazy things start happening. There's miracles. There's people coming to Jesus every single day. Here's what the Bible says at the end of Acts chapter 2 about the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came over every soul. There were many wonders and signs being done through the apostles. All who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number. Day by day, those who are being saved. That is an incredibly powerful picture of the church. If you turn probably two, page to the right, two pages to the right in your Bible to Acts chapter 6, you know what you find? These same people who were glad, breaking bread together, hanging out every day, are in a fight or in conflict over who gets bread given to them. Here's what happened. Between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 6, there were a group of Jewish people who had more of the Greek culture in them. They spoke more of the Greek language. Those people were being neglected inside the church by the Jewish people who had spoke the Aramaic language, had stayed more around the the promised land and lived in that area. They were more Jewish than Greek. These other people were maybe a little bit more Greek than Jewish. And God had brought all these people together in the church. And almost immediately, like two chapters into into the book of Acts, there's conflict because these people are being neglected by those people. It's actually where the New Testament office of deacon came from, is the apostles came together and said, hey, we have to make sure that everyone's needs in the church are being cared for, and that's what the deacons exist for, and that's why deacons are an important part of our church. Not just in Acts chapter 6, but in Acts chapter 11, some members of the church begin to have a conflict with Peter because he went to the house of a Gentile person, and they didn't think that was right. There was racism in the early church. Acts chapter 15, some people in the church began to teach that Christians, even those who were not Jewish, should obey the law of Moses and be circumcised. They actually got into a big fight about this. Acts chapter 15, verse 2 says, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension with them. Acts chapter 17, Paul and Barnabas, who are friends, actually get into a disagreement about who to take with them on their next mission trip. Barnabas wants to bring this guy named John Mark. John Mark had kind of abandoned Paul at one point. Paul didn't want John Mark to go again. Matter of fact, this conflict gets so real that they end up just splitting ways and like, fine, you guys go that way, we'll go this way. 
The reason Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians is because that church was so filled with conflict, people were divided up into cliques. They were taking each other to court, suing each other in court. We're going to talk about their Lord's Supper was a total, their communion time was a total disaster. We're going to talk about that at the end here today because they were not caring for one another. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, all written to churches who were experiencing some type of division within them. In the book of Philippians, Paul actually calls people out by name. Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. I entreat, I'm begging Iodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, companion, help these two women who have labored side by side with me for the gospel. These women had helped, they were godly women who were working hard on behalf of the gospel, but they were in a disagreement so much so that Paul had to call them out by name. Can you imagine like, hey, Iota, Syntyche, I got some good news for you. Your name's going to be in the Bible. Everyone's going to read it. I have some bad news, right? It's mainly because you can't get along. Other bad news, your name is Yodia and Syntyche, but that's... <laughs> Here's the point. The church today is experiencing division unlike many of us have ever seen in our lifetime. But that's not really new. It's happened from the beginning because when you take the power of the gospel... And you bring people from different backgrounds, men and women, different races. You bring people different socioeconomic status, different levels of education, different experiences, different family upbringings. They bring to that family their own set of values, their own set of beliefs, their own set of how they see the world. You know what else they bring to the family? A whole bunch of their own sinfulness and ugliness, and it all comes together. And that's just kind of... What makes the church not perfect, beautifully imperfect. And in my time, as a member of Grace Point, in my family's time for the last 12 years, man, we've contributed both to the beauty and to the imperfection. Because I brought my sinfulness here. Mike brings his sinfulness, you bring yours, and that is a community that is really ripe for conflict. But that's not what God wants for us. What he actually wants for us is to be unified. So, so much of the New Testament is written to help these churches find a path towards unity. And we find part of that in Titus. We've been reading 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus together as a church. Titus chapter 3, verse 11. Here's what Paul has to say. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see today that the unity of the church means more than we could ever imagine. Unity means more than we think. And we're going to see why it means more than we think. We're going to see why, what it requires of us, and we're going to see the beauty that's a result of it in the end, okay? So let's just see where Paul's head is when he's talking about unity. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. No qualifiers there, by the way. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. And show perfect courtesy to all people. Now look at what he does here. For we ourselves were once foolish. We were once disobedient, led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days. Look at how we were passing our days. In malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Hey, anger and being angry with each other, Paul says, that is the trademark of a life that has not yet experienced God's grace. Because look at how he carries on. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works that we had done by righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ, so that being justified by his grace, we could become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And look at how he ends this. But avoid foolish controversies, avoid genealogies, avoid dissensions, avoid quarrels about the law, because they are unprofitable and they are worthless. And as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Whew. Off the top rope, Paul. Hey, person, causing dissension once, twice, second, third, after that, be done with them. They are self-condemned. What does self-condemned mean? Here's what it means. It means the way that they're showing up every day, stirring up dissension, causing problems, disrupting the unity of the church, that's a commentary on what's happening inside their life. And they've already made a declaration by how they act, no matter what they might say when they're in the big room on Sunday morning, when they show up at the other times in the church life and they're stirring up a big mess. Paul said that commentary says they're not truly knowing what God is like, who God is. And so Paul takes unity very seriously. And so we're going to talk about why that is today. So here we go. The reason Paul so protective of unity in the church. The reason unity means more than we think, first and foremost, is this. Unity means more than we think because there is more at stake. Hey, listen, the reason that we need to be together, a unified church, sorry, Mike, it's not just to make your life easier, okay? It's not so that you don't have to come and like stop splitting up, you know, split up fights or broker peace between people. That's not what it's about. Hey, it's actually not even about you having a great small group experience. It's about something even bigger than that. There is so much more at stake in the unity of our church, and we need to get real with how important this is in our life. And you know who tells us how important it is? Is Jesus Christ, when he's praying for his disciples, John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, he's praying for his disciples. And here's what he says, John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only. That's Jesus saying, hey, I'm not praying for these men only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. By the way, that includes us, right? Down the line, we're here because these men were faithful with the word of God. That they may be one. What's he praying for us? I'm praying that they would be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, that they may be one in us. Why does he want us to be one? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? Again, so that the world will know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Hey, being a unified church isn't about wanting to make Mike's life easier, wanting to make Grace Point have a great reputation. Unity isn't about the reputation of Grace Point. It's about the reputation of Jesus. When the world looks at a group of people who shouldn't be together, 
and they come together because of the power of Jesus Christ, that says, hey, what they believe, or in this case, who they believe in, must be real because look at the impact it's having in their life. This is as true for us today as it was for those few disciples that Jesus was talking to. On February 9th, 2009, one of the most impactful inventions in the history of the world, maybe overstating it, maybe not, just lean in with me here, was unveiled. Anybody know what was invented on February 9th, 2009? How about this? The Facebook like button. They actually didn't want to do it. This, this thing has a whole interesting history, right? The Facebook like button. Of course, the like button would soon give birth to all kinds of other buttons. I told the other service I'm way too young to be on Facebook, so I don't understand all this stuff. Um, but there's all these other reactions on Facebook, right, and social media. Hey, do you know something? The culture we live in today is a faction-generating machine. What it wants to do is to tap into your most basic emotions so that you engage deeper and deeper and deeper with the content. Facebook actually found when they let all these emotions out that that emotional emotion, emotions, emotional emotions. What are these called? Emojis? Emojis. Okay, thank you. They found that emotional emojis <laughs> drove more engagement on the platform. So things like the heart, the sad face, and specifically anger, they weighted as five times more powerful in their algorithm. What does this mean? Here's what it means. The algorithm that drives everything you see on social media By the way, traditional media tapped into this too. They understand the power of anger. It is made to tap into your deepest emotions, usually anger, because all they care about is driving engagement on their platform. And I think what Jesus is saying is this. When there is an oasis of people who love one another, who are unified together, in the middle of a culture that's literally designed to make us be divided, that's something only God can create. And when Jesus prays this prayer, he's praying this, he's saying, hey, when people who shouldn't be united are united, the world stands up and takes notice, and whatever they believe must be real. And the converse is true, too. I have to believe that when the outside world looks at a church it looks at a group of followers of Christ who are fighting about all the same things. They got to think, man, what they have going on over there isn't that much different than what I got going on here on Facebook. And so there's more at stake. What's at stake? The unity, or sorry, the reputation of Jesus. Secondly, there's a second reason that unity is so important. So much of the Bible talks about it. There's a second reason why unity means more, and that is there's more at stake, but there's also more required of us to be the kind of people who display the kind of unity that makes Jesus look real, that's a high requirement for each and every one of us. This isn't about passivity. This isn't about um, the kind of unity that makes Jesus look real isn't just being members of the same religious organization. The kind of unity that makes Jesus look real isn't just about the absence of conflict. 
The kind of unity that makes Jesus look real isn't about just avoiding disagreements. The kind of unity that makes Jesus look real is really, really hard work. It's active, and it requires some things from us, and these are heavy demands. Let's see what they are in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul's writing about to the church in Ephesus about unity there. Here's what he says. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. Hey, there is a requirement here. If we're going to get to the kind of unity that makes Jesus look real, there's more that's required of us. What is it? First of all, what's required of us is that we walk well. The kind of unity that makes Jesus look real requires that we walk well. Paul says at the very beginning, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Hey, I I just want to say this. Sin isn't the only thing that causes disunity. That's not the only thing, right? People can love God and be trying to do the right thing and be humble and be pursuing God's word and have different points of view on things. That can happen, okay? That can cause some disruption. But, so sin's, sin's not the only thing that causes disunity, but sin always causes disunity. Always. It has from the beginning of time until now, and in every sphere of life, this is true. Adam and Eve, from the moment they first sinned, one of the immediate consequences was division in their relationship with God, division with one another. And this is still true of us today. You want unity in your marriage today? Here's where you should start. Start by making sure that you're walking well. You've got to cut out the stuff that doesn't align with God's plan for your life. You want to have unity with your kids and inside your family? You've got to make sure you are walking well. Want to have unity inside your church? It starts with walking in a way that is worthy of our calling. Sin always causes disunity. And so the kind of unity that makes Jesus look legit isn't passive, it's active. It requires more of us. And one thing that it requires is that we evaluate constantly. How are we walking? Are we walking in truth? Second thing. Gospel unity, the kind of unity that makes Jesus look legit, that requires gentle patience. Gentle patience, Ephesians 4.2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another. I love that phrase, bear with one another. Like Sometimes like, hey, that's like the most spiritual thing you can do is just bear with somebody. All right, some of you have been bearing with me for like 15 minutes now. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Hey, Humility, gentleness, patience. How we walk is our actions. Here we're talking about our attitudes. Can I tell you something? I'm terrible at this. Like, this is not my natural bent. I am built to be a person with really strong opinions that I know all of you want to know. I am not built to be patient, especially with people. And when I let the parts of my personality that don't align with the Holy Spirit, that don't align with God's plan for my life, when I let those rise up and take control in my life, guess what that results in? A lot of things. <laughs> but one of those is disunity. Disunity with Rachel, disunity in our home, 
Disunity at my work? Disunity in the church. I have to have my attitude under the control of the Holy Spirit. It requires, unity requires gentle patience. Next. Unity requires, gospel unity requires loving one another. The kind of unity that makes Jesus look real requires us to actually love each other. Hey, I want you to look around this room for a second. Go ahead. If you're up front, I need you to turn your heads around. It's okay. It's okay. You're going to look at people. It's going to be weird. Hey, do you see somebody in this room that you think, man, like I love that person? I really actually love that person. Your spouse doesn't count. (laughs) That was debatable for some of you anyway. (laughs) Your kids don't count. Ephesians 4, with all humility, gentleness, and patience, bear with one another. What's the next word? In love. About 14 years ago, I was in a small group, and a new couple joined in. They had two kids at the time. I'm pretty sure one of them was in one of those like 500-pound car seat things you got to carry around. We had a kid that was in one of those 500-pound car seat things you got to carry around. We only had two kids at the time. And from that day forward, Michael and Leslie Palladino have been part of our lives. Michael's back up there in the booth doing something. Um, serving, serving. Important, important service, sorry. You know what? Together with those guys, we've watched those little kids that were in those car seats turn into teenagers. We've laughed and cried about parenting little kids. We've raged about parenting teenagers together. When our family experienced a major crisis, they were in it with us every day. Michael Palladino met me at McDonald's at Airport Boulevard at 6 a.m. on Tuesday, every Tuesday for a long time, so much saturated fat. Um, We've been to funerals. We brought each other food. A lot of highs and lows together. There's a relationship there that's just, it's deeper than just friendship. It's deeper than we go to church together. It's like when we look at them, we're like, hey, I love those guys, and I know those guys love us. And there's a genuine love for one another. And I just, I just want to hear you, maybe this sounds better from a church member than from the pastor for a second. You need that kind of relationship in your life. And, and I mean this humbly. I mean this humbly, but I just I want to say it. You don't get there showing up to this room for one hour, 2.7 Sundays a month. That's not how you build that kind of love for each other. You've got to go deeper. And I wonder if God's not calling our church into deeper loving relationships with one another because that's what the kind of unity that makes Jesus looks real requires. We've got to have that. We have to love one another. Next, gospel unity requires that we walk well. It requires gentle patience. It requires loving relationships with each other. The kind of unity that makes Jesus look real requires us to follow the Holy Spirit. It requires us to follow the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that you would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Hey, let me just tell you something about the direction that the Holy Spirit is always moving. The Holy Spirit is always moving us towards unity. He wants us to be together. 
He wants us to be unified together, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And whenever there's conflict, whenever there's dissension, whenever there's disruption, I don't mean godly disagreement. I mean whenever there's broken relationships, whenever there's anger, whenever that comes in, you know what that means? That means someone's not going the same direction as the Holy Spirit's going in life. You show me a, a husband and wife who love God, whose, whose marriage is marked by conflict, I will show you somebody who's not following the Holy Spirit in their life every single time. You show me a church that's marked by conflict, I will find in that church people who are not following the Holy Spirit because he's always moving us together towards gospel unity. And so again, I say, look, the type of unity that makes Jesus look real requires more from us in our relationship with God day to day than just showing up on a Sunday, hoping the music's good, and maybe the preacher says something that's applicable to life. It requires us to go hard after God in our life to make sure that we are walking in step with the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit always leads us towards unity. Last thing, Mike talked about this quite a bit last week. But it's here again because it's just so important. The kind of unity that makes Jesus look real requires truth. It requires truth. Ephesians 4, verse 16, I'm going to not read the whole passage there, but at the end of this kind of passage about unity, Paul says, Speak the truth in love so that we grow up in every way into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. The Rand Corporation is a public policy research group. They recently published a report called Truth Decay, which is like a super terrible pun, um, but they did it. Here's what they said. Over the last two decades, the role of facts and analysis in American public life has been declining. It's a phenomenon called truth decay. It has led to alienation, a lack of civil discourse, political paralysis, and general uncertainty about about what's true and what's not. Hey, can I tell you what? When you untether from truth, conflict fills in the gaps. We see this in our society, and I'm not trying to take a cheap shot here that's like, ha-ha, this is so dumb. This is real, okay? But you look at what's happened in our world in the last five years around gender and the idea that we've become untethered from basic truth about human gender and God's design. And what you see now is we have conflict about what a man is and what a woman is. Why? Because we got detached from truth. Church, we've got to love this book. We've got to embrace this book. And what's here is true. It's inspired. And it's for our lives. And we've got to be centered around this. Now, hey, guess what? Sometimes that's not quite enough. Um, at least to get us all the way to unity. And here's what I mean by that. My brother was in the first service. My, my brother and I, um, we view the world pretty similarly for the most part, but we're both made the same in that we both have very strong opinions, okay? We fish together. We can't even decide where to fish. Like we're just riding around the boat yelling at each other, deep, shallow, up, down, whatever, okay? Hey, there's times in life when Justin and I we're both seeking after God. We're both walking with the Holy Spirit. We read this and we say, man, I think this means something a little bit different. That's okay. If we do what St. Augustine said. Here's what St. Augustine said. 
in the essentials, there has to be unity. In the essentials, unity. Hey, what are the essentials? Well, let's start with this, that in some form or fashion, God created people. People sinned and fell short of him. We need a Savior. God sent Jesus, his only son, perfect, holy, fully man, fully God, to save us from our sins. Salvation is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Those are some of the essentials. We've got to be unified around that stuff. Hey, in the non-essentials, liberty. In the non-essentials, liberty. That is, hey, Mike and I might not feel the same way about, I'm trying to think of something we might not feel. How about the temperature of this room? <laughs> okay. <laughs> we might not feel the same way about the temperature of this room. Liberty. Hey, whatever. I'll wear a t-shirt when it's too hot in here. I'll wear a coat when it's too cold in here. But in all things, charity, we're going to show up with love for one another all the time. And when we do that, it makes Jesus look real. Final thing, the reason unity is important, not just because more is at stake. What's at stake? The reputation of Jesus. More is required. Hey, this is an active deal. It's not passive. We've got to work at it. It's hard work to be unified. More is required. Thirdly, more is returned. What I mean by that is there's actually, when we do the hard work to live unified together as a family of God, there is more benefit for you to do church that way than to do it another way. And we see it beautifully in the book of Psalm 133, 133rd Psalm. Let's end with this today. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down to his robes. And it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for the Lord has commanded blessing life forevermore. What does that mean? These two word pictures, okay? Two word pictures here. When we dwell in unity, it's like oil. So in Exodus chapter 30, you can actually go and read the recipe for this sacred oil that God had given the priest, Aaron, to use. Um, I was actually thinking about making some because it's not that complicated. Um, You need myrrh, cinnamon, cane, cassia, and olive oil, okay? So we have like four of those things at the house, maybe three. But, but God gave them this special oil, and they said, only make this much of it. Don't make any more. Don't give it away to anybody else. This isn't just like floating around. Like, this is super sacred, special oil. It's precious. There's not very much of it. And the picture here is, hey, when, when people who are really different live together in unity, it's like this sacred oil just being dumped down lavishly. Like, hey, there's not very much of it, but we don't care. We're dumping it out on the head, on the beard, on, all the way down on the robes, just this lavish picture of love together, unified. Second picture here is when we dwell together in unity, it's like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. Hey, check this out. This is Mount Hermon, okay? It's up in northern Israel. There's snow there. There's like a ski resort there. I don't think you want to go to that ski resort. Some of the pictures had like dudes with guns, like machine guns protecting it. It's not the safest ski resort, okay? But there is a ski resort there. Hey, check out Mount Zion. It's in southern Israel. Dry hot and desolate. If you want a great, interesting Bible study for this week, just Google Mount Hermon, Mount Zion, Psalm 133, and look at like the 35 different layers to this picture that are in the Bible, because it's amazing. But one of the things that this shows us is this. Hey, this is like when brothers dwell in unity, it's like the dew that falls on this beautiful, lush mountain falling on this dry, 
crusty mountain. And everything that it brings, the refreshment, the nourishment, the enjoyment, the pleasure of a cool dew morning in the middle of a desert oasis, that's what unity is like. So God, will you bring us as a church together around this idea of unity? It's important. Your reputation rests on how we interact with one another. May we feel the weight of that. Will you show us places where we need to do more to make this church more glorifying to you? And God, I do pray that it would be an oasis of refreshment in the middle of the dry desert of our culture. It's your name we pray. Amen. We're going to enter into a time of communion. So if you have your elements, I want you to take those out and have those handy. When Paul's writing to the church in Corinth and telling them instructions for communion, you know, this thing kind of gets buried in this big controversy and division that they were actually having. He actually tells them, hey, the instructions I'm about to give you, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for good, but for bad. He's saying, hey, what I'm about to tell you guys what to do, you're doing a terrible job of, okay? This thing that's supposed to bring you together is driving you apart. It's like, for the first place, when, I come, when you come together as a church, there's divisions among you. That can't be true. When you come together for communion, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meals, and others go hungry, and another gets drunk. So they're showing up. They're not all getting to church on time. Hey, amen to that, right? Some of them are doing Lord's Supper communion stuff, and some of them are just like, hey, we got here first. Let's just hammer all the bread. Other people are like, hey, we got here early. Let's drink. I mean, you would have a hard time getting drunk over the grape juice that's in here or eating a full meal of this wafer, but that's what was happening. Other people were showing up and they're going hungry. They're all with their friends. They're excluding other people. It was a mess. And Paul said to them, that's not what this is about. That's not what this is about. What is this about? We're never more unified than when we do this. He says, when you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Proclaiming the Lord's death. Guys, that is something that we can unify around, isn't it? Ready to do it together? I'm going to ask you to go ahead and open your elements. Before we take the bread, pause for a moment of reflection. Thanking God for his body is broken for us. Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of my new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Hey, listen, church. There's a lot of things that we can be about as a church. There's a lot of things. There's plenty of very real things that make unity really hard. But I know this. We've got to be about proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. In northwest Arkansas, in our community, and around the world, that's what living sin is. It's proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And my prayer is that that would be strong enough powerful enough, compelling enough for your life and mine that it pushes back all these other distractions and divisions so that we can be faithful doing that. Amen? Let me pray. Father, will you help us to be a church that is faithful to proclaim your death? We'll be unified around the idea of the gospel and what you've done for us. It's your name that I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live Sent.